when I create content, I think about how someone with hearing loss or vision loss is going to experience my content. How would someone with a cognitive disability experience my content? You have to think like that. And I know it feels like extra, but it's really not because if you're not creating accessible content, that's a missing piece of your content creation process, not an additional piece. You're listening to Social Slowdown, a podcast for entrepreneurs and micro businesses looking for sustainable marketing strategies without being dependent on social media. I'm your host, Meg Casebolt, and I have a new book coming out called Social Slowdown. It's taking all of the 80 plus interviews that we've done so far in this podcast series and turned it into something that's a little bit more easily digestible. It will be available on July 27th, 2023 and it'll only be $4 on Kindle and $9 on paperback. So I would love, love, love if you could support the podcast by going on Amazon and buying the book. If you pre-order it, I would especially appreciate that because that would help us get to a bestseller status. Even if you don't read it, that's okay. So if you want to get your copy of the Social Slowdown book, head on over to socialslowdown.com book and get that today. And now let's get back to the podcast, which is all about finding creative, sustainable ways to engage with your audience without needing to lip sync, send cold DMs, run ads, or be available 24-7. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. It's Meg Casebolt. I am the host of Social Slowdown, and I am here with Alex Heinrich, who I have never met before. Uh, But as I have been working on the Social Slowdown book, I was looking specifically for resources around how to make your social media more accessible. And Alex has created AccessibleSocial.com. And I was like, let's just hop on and have a conversation. So thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat about accessibility, best practices for social media. And also um, 100% allowed to rant about whatever you want to. This is a very open platform for that. My favorite. (laughs) Exactly. As I was writing the draft, I was like, here are a list of things that piss me off about accessibility and social media. So that, that will go into the actual book. But let's have this conversation first, which is like, you're you started as a social media strategist and then I read on the accessible social website um, and then you realized just how little information there was out there so you built this entire resource right so tell me a little bit about that process and how that worked for you yeah so I am a social media manager for a college and I've always worked in higher education I've usually always worked in marketing. Social media is really where I found my like groove of what I wanted to do with my career. And, you know, as a lot of social media professionals find, I had other job duties as assigned with my last job. And one of them involved kind of updating the websiders on our homepage at the organization that I worked for in Chicago. You know, pretty easy, straightforward and I was doing that the one day and the digital strategist on my team, my, my good friend asked me, she's like, oh, are you, are you adding alt text to those? And I kind of just looked at her like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about because my background was in graphic design, advertising, marketing, you know, accessibility wasn't really something that we learned about when I was in school. That's really something that was more for web developers. And she explained what it was for. And I kind of just remember having this overwhelming sense of panic 
mm-hmm. and going home and doing all this research into like, what does alt text mean for digital communications? And then I remember crying because yeah. I felt really bad that I had been possibly creating barriers for people trying to get an education. Now I know like now thinking about it, that was probably hyperbole in my case. I, I know that I wasn't actively being a barrier. You know, social media isn't where our students were getting like all their information, but still I wanted to be better about the content that I created for that institution. So I started doing all this research into what accessibility meant for social media. And it was not an easy process because most of the information out there is for websites and other digital communications and how you can make those accessible. Social media is really still too new, despite being 20 at this point, to gain that kind of interest from the accessibility community. Social media can drink now, can't it? Like Facebook yeah. could go to the bar. Mm-hmm. Yep. Instagram yep. could get married. Like these aren't nascent newborn platforms anymore. These are mega, like mega billion dollar conglomerates. And we're treating them yep. like, oh, but they're the new guys because the web's been around since Al Gore invented it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, it just, it really became a passion project for me. And I always get people asking like, oh, well, you must have you started doing accessibility because you know you yourself have a disability that impacts how you use digital communications. And at the time that that was not true. I just wanted to do better for everyone else. Right. You don't have to have a disability in order to be compassionate and sympathetic and want to support people who have a disability and to be able to make something that's accessible to people who have different disabilities than you do is just a good practice. Exactly. And I've come to realize through my accessibility work, I do now identify as disabled um, in a number of different ways, which is you know really eye-opening as you kind of delve into that more. But I do heavily rely on captions for my video content because while I don't have serious hearing loss right now, I do cognitively process information better when it's in a visual format rather than an audio format, which is something you learn as a kid. Mm -hmm. I I remember in, it was third or fourth grade, we had this unit on um, learning styles. Exactly. It was learning styles. You can be an image person or like a reading person or an auditory person or a kinesthetic learner. I specifically remember that phrase of kinesthetic learning of being tactile and like all of the sensory inputs. And it was just like, well, this is how different people learn. And I remember taking a quiz that was like, you're 30% video or like images and Mm -hmm. 20% audio and 10% and like they ranked them, but it was never like, here's how you can make sure everyone is able to learn from this. It was just like, well, this is what works for you. And I'm similar to you in that it wasn't until I was 35 that I went, huh, (laughs) maybe there's some, I don't know how old you were. I'm not saying that was the similarity, but for me, it was being 35 and being in a pandemic and needing to homeschool a kid who I, who neither of us could sit still. And I was like, maybe I should look at this ADHD thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more I looked into ADHD, uh, honestly, I learned that I had an auditory processing issue from Reddit. (laughs) I feel like Reddit and TikTok have kind of led the charge on self-diagnosis when it comes to neurodivergence and disability. And it's 
it's been really eye-opening for a lot of people. But I mean, that just goes to show how diverse disability actually is. I mean, disability is the only diverse community that you can join and leave or be part of different areas of it. So this all is kind of stuff that I try to educate people on when it comes to accessibility for social media, because I get a lot of people that are like, well, why would someone who's blind be on Instagram? Well, they, they may not have always been blind. Also, why wouldn't they? They still deserve the same level of access to information on Instagram that anyone else does. So Right. They can still DM. They can still exactly. consume content. Why are, you, why are you on Instagram? Yeah. Why do you feel like that would be different for somebody just because they may have some vision loss or they may mm-hmm. have some hearing loss? And like, as you and I are discussing, disability doesn't always look like inability to use. Right a specific sensory input. It's like, I, I can hear everything, mm-hmm. but if I need to actually learn something, I have to read it. Yep. Exactly. Which is ironically, I'm host a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, podcasts, you can write transcripts for them. You can caption them if you do podcasts with visual. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of ways to make all content more accessible for just about anyone in you know multiple ways. And most of the the information on the internet, like you were saying, is very much for, you know, oh, you're going to be on YouTube, so you should add captions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's creators who are, or, you know, you're recording a podcast, make sure to do a transcript. And I teach that too, as an SEO person, like, hey, <laughs> Google can't listen to your podcast, go do a transcript. So that way it has something to index, right? Like there are other benefits of having these accessible conversations beyond that. And then, you know, with, with wave accessibility, there's so much information out there about web accessibility about, mm-hmm. and, you know, the little accessible pop-ups that you can get that add things to your website. But <laughs> so many people are getting their key pieces of information from social media and social media is not, it, it can be, accessible, but it's not built into the platforms. So it's still up to us as creators to make sure that we're doing it our best. So let's talk about that. Like, what are some of those best practices on different platforms? And then if you want to leap into some of the politics behind it, I'm here for that too. Yeah. To be clear, (laughs) most of the platforms do make it a lot easier now to make accessible content. My big gripe with a lot of the platforms is they don't Sure, they make these features available, but they don't do a very good job of explaining to users and content creators how to go about making Mm -hmm. their content accessible or why it's important. So there's that education gap. Um, But, you know, writing alt text for your images so that someone using a screen reader can access that information, you know, captioning videos, as we've explained, even how you format hashtags makes a big impact on how someone has access to your content. Because if you have an all lowercase hashtag and it's got multiple words in it, it could become one long mishmashed word if it's read by a screen reader, which a lot of people don't realize. So instead you're supposed to use what's called camel case. Camel case or Pascal case either works. Um, They're actually... Camel case is actually a web developer term. I is it? learned. Yes, because they're like, you're telling people the wrong way to do camel case. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Marketing um, kind of took your term and perverted it a little bit. But as long as they're formatting their hashtags correctly, that's all I care about. 
<laughs> you can call it whatever you want as long as the hashtag is formatted properly. Exactly. Yeah, that was something I learned from your website. I was like, cool. oh, well, I'm going to put this in the book because I learned this new term, but now it's not the right term. And this is how the internet of information works is that we get as good of information as we can, but all of these things are also constantly changing, you know, mm -hmm. and my understanding too is that often these platforms are rolling out new features and then it isn't until they get pushback from the disabled community where they say, wait, what about us? That they're like, oh yeah, we should think about that, shouldn't we? Yeah, which so, is a big thing behind how Twitter developed a lot of their current accessibility features is based on feedback or pushback from the disability community they released the beta version of their audio tweets a couple years ago, which you know, was a cool feature, but there was no transcript or caption feature for those beta, for the, those beta audio tweets. And they immediately got pushed back and they came out like the next day and said, you know what? You are totally right. We're so sorry. This was something that we did not think about and we're going to do better which I kind of rolled my eyes at at the time because I'm like, okay, you're a major <laughs> platform telling us that you're going to do better. That so rarely happens. Right. And then I think it was about two months later, they released a whole like blog post about what they were going to do to support accessibility more. They actually created a devoted team for accessibility, not just like a volunteer group within Twitter of employees who had an interest in accessibility. It was actually the accessibility experience team. And they were very transparent moving forward about how they handled accessibility and building it into the platform and its features. So yeah, having that level of transparency from a major platform was really a big deal because the other platforms still don't really do that. Um, so it was really nice. So yeah, I really miss the accessibility experience team at Twitter because they are no longer there. Thanks, or, Elon. Yeah, thanks, Elon. Um, and there hasn't been much progress with accessibility on the platform since that team was laid off, which is really sad because Twitter has since rolled out features that aren't necessarily accessible, like longer tweets on Twitter that have the show more uh, cut. Those are not accessible in the feed. So a screen reader device does not pick up on the show more cut. It just stops mm -hmm. reading. So yeah, it's really... It's disheartening when platforms just completely disregard accessibility and basically exclude an entire community from accessing content on the platforms and sometimes really vital information. That is the reality that we deal with. And the community that they are exclusionary towards are often the ones that I don't want to say they cannot get information in different ways, but social media is so often a place where they're congregating mm -hmm. because if you have some sort of, you know, physical, especially physical, but cognitive also disability, like mm -hmm. you may not be able to get out and about in the community as easily. Yeah. Yeah. So and you're, that was you're more dependent on social media, which is not able to give you the information that you need, even though it can give it to people who do have the ability to gather it in different ways. Yeah, and that's been a big topic of discussion since Twitter was sold last fall was how um, the disability community, you know, we rely heavily on Twitter for engaging with each other and staying connected and sharing information. And suddenly, not only is accessibility not a priority on the platform, but the platform itself has become 
more hostile and less of a community because of the changes that have been implemented um, since new ownership took over, um, sadly. Yeah, it's really hard. And, and especially when you have, you've developed those relationships on a specific platform like Twitter, you can't just say, okay, guys, we're off. We're going to LinkedIn, right? Like getting, once you've established yourself, it's almost like there's a, a sunk cost there of mm-hmm. I've established myself as a, a thought leader in this space. I've built all these different, um, systems to be able to check in with people, especially, I think, especially with Twitter, it's almost more addictive than some of the other platforms because it moves so quickly. So like people who love Twitter, like, or loved past tense, maybe it was the first thing that they checked in the morning. I, I'm speaking specifically of like people who are like Lin-Manuel Miranda forgot to say goodnight to us. And now I can't go to sleep. You know (laughs) Because he'll say good morning and good night every day. Or he did, like, say it on Twitter every day. People would be like, good morning, Lynn Manuel. You know, like, it's it's a place where people were in those communities, even if you don't necessarily have a, a one-to-one relationship. It was an easy space to right. get access in a way that, you know, Facebook business profiles or, or brand personas, like, you don't expect it to be the real person. But Twitter gave you access to celebrities, to journalists, to, you know, to thought leaders in a way that you couldn't always get on other platforms. And now that's taken away. Yeah. And even, even the brands themselves are more casual on Twitter where you feel it's less robotic and more Mm. personable when it comes to communicating with your favorite brand, like, you know, McDonald's, very like easygoing kind of tone and voice that they have with their content that they put out right now it's being taken over by grimace (laughs) and it's very funny to watch so yeah it's uh it's kind of sad to see such a great community tool become less and and not have a simple alternative that's accessible as an easy place to move yeah yes So what's been the response to people when, when you tell them about accessible social or when they find it, is there a lot of that? Like, why would you bother with this? Or are people generally pretty like, Oh, I didn't know about this. Like how, what's been the reaction to creating this resource? I get a lot less people who are Mm. dismissive now. When did you start it? Great. Uh, Accessible social just turned one in March. Yeah. So before that, I kind of hosted all this different information, all these resources through my personal website. And I wanted to, for a while, kind of disconnect myself from being the face of accessible social. Um, I wanted the website to kind of live on its own and be its own entity. So less, less about me and my website and more about the resources and information that you would find. So I finally decided, okay, I'm going to build an actual website for Accessible Social, buy a domain, all that good stuff. Plus, I really wanted to actually make the Accessible Social website accessible. Um, Yeah, (laughs) the irony, which probably it wasn't bad by any means, but it was limited with what I was doing because I, I'm not a web developer. I don't have coding experience. So I was just hosting my website through a GoDaddy template, which is great. I mean, they make it really easy if you don't know how to build a website to make a website for yourself. But there were things that I needed to do that I just couldn't do through that template. So I actually moved 
accessible social into its own domain and then built a website through Webflow, primarily because Webflow really prioritizes accessibility and has accessibility audits built into the web design mm-hmm. process. So I really highly, this this is not an ad for It Webflow, is now. I highly recommend yeah, I highly recommend Webflow because they make it really easy to not only build a website from scratch when you don't know anything about building a website, but building accessible websites. So I get a lot of compliments from people saying like, we really like how not only is Accessible Social this great resource, but it's also really accessible. I'm like, good, because I check it frequently and I panic over it almost every other day. <laughs> So I'm glad that people find it to be an accessible resource on top of yeah, a good and, resource. And on top of a good amount of information that's reasonable to consume and up to date on what's happening on these different platforms. Uh, and let's talk about yeah. let's talk about that accessibility piece because you say like I go check it and I sort of panic. Are you using the wave audit? Are you like how are you checking your own accessibility? So I do use the wave audit occasionally, but for the most part, I make sure that none of my audits through Webflow are showing up as mm-hmm. like red. There's like a, you can see it when you're building in Webflow if something's wrong, um, but also just listening to people's feedback as they visit the website. So I just learned last week that sticky navigation menus, so when you scroll, it's always at the top, are not exactly accessible. I'm like, mm-hmm. I will go fix that. So I removed that from the website. They're like, oh, well, you don't really need one anyway. You have an arrow that's always at the bottom corner that takes you back to the top of the website. So you're good. I'm like, good to know. So yeah, the website is a living website, which means it gets updated all the time, which also means I break it quite frequently as I learn different things about uh, website design. So that's always a fun experiment, but thankfully the uh web development community and Webflow are really helpful. And I've learned a lot in the year that I've been managing the website. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what it's become and how accessible it actually is. So I think the only thing that I could do more at this point is do dark mode for it, which mm. I don't know how to do. So, and I refuse to do a web overlay, overlay on the site because that's not accessible despite what everyone may think. Don't put web overlays on your website. Those are basically like those little widgets in the corner of a website say, oh, click this for making the website accessible. They don't actually do that. So you want to Interesting. Avoid what else? What else? <laughs> what other like best practices or, or myths do you have anything else that you want to dispel as long as we have a sort of captive audience? They can skip ahead. It's fine. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. So I think one of the things when it comes to creating accessible social media content that I hear a lot of is that it's hard or time consuming. And it's really not. Um, creating accessible social media is super easy. Captioning videos is actually pretty easy. There are tools out there that make it easy. You can caption videos through YouTube and completely, you know, edit them, make your captions perfect, make them ideal and accessible. Writing alt text to me is completely second nature. It takes me no time at all and actually makes me a better marketer because I am more intentional about the images Mm -hmm. that I choose when I create content because there have definitely been instances where I'm like... I am not writing alt text for this image. I'm going to choose a different (laughs) one. (laughs) Um, Plus, 
I work in higher education. So I love being able to use accessibility as the reason why I'm not going to use your event flyer on our social media because I'm not going to sit there and write alt text for all this content. So you're going to give me a different image or be fine with what I yeah, come up with. I love that. And, you know, I think a lot of times people don't necessarily think like, like, uh, this is not, <laughs> it's not even social media related, but I guess it sort of is. My kids' school, I have two kids in elementary school, and they regularly put images into the Special Education Parent Teacher Association will just put an image with no alt text that's just full of text. And I'm like, I, I, I'm on my phone. I can't read this image that used to be eight by 10 size that you then yeah. put into something that's, you know, three inches tall max. I can't read all of that. And then you have to do like the squeeze thing. Right. Like, Guys, we're the special ed PTA. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but the parents, I mean, parents, creators, we're all just doing our best. You know, we're all trying to create valuable content, but it, yeah. even like as we start, talked about, like, even if you're not specifically talking to people who are disabled or who need the accessibility functions, it's just good marketing. Yes, exactly. It is just good marketing. Most people have a very short attention span. And if you're throwing like three paragraphs, my favorite is when like a brand or a celebrity needs to write an apology and they do the notes app and they screenshot it, nope. post it as an image. Most people are not going to stop to scroll and read that because our attention span is so Sure. And I also don't want to zoom in on all of that and then have to move the image around my screen because it doesn't reactively resize based on what you've zoomed in on. Maybe so they don't really want people to read the apology, though, to be marketing. fair. It's just um, that the PR but, team said they had to put it out, but nobody's actually expecting you to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always interesting to see what people think is going to work on social media. Plus, the algorithms themselves mm -hmm. deprioritize wordy graphics like that because they know that people aren't logging on to social media looking for something like that. Your event flyer is not going to do well unless you're Taylor Swift releasing your tour dates. Mm -hmm. But even then, you need to make it accessible. You need to write alt text for it. So it's just, it's really interesting how people think about their content or don't think about their content. No, I'm curious. Um, you're working it. for higher ed. You're doing the social media within the greater marketing team for university. What's, and you can, you can totally defer on this question if you want to, we'll cut it out. That's fine. Um, <laughs> what's your personal relationship with social media like, and how, how do you set your boundaries so that you can work on social media all day, but then also not feel like you're attached to it like nights and weekends? I love social media. Um, I'm going <laughs> to say I really like attention. I like being the center of attention. And <laughs> social media gives me that outlet. <laughs> um, but I also just like the ease with which you can connect with people. Um, I believe it or not, some of my friends would probably laugh at the statement. I am an introvert. So I recharge by being alone. And it's nice because social media is like being in a big room with all these people, mm -hmm. but you're not really in the room with them. So it doesn't overwhelm me. It doesn't drain my energy quite like, you know, being in an actual crowded room does. But when it comes to balance, I try really hard to be online less on the weekends when you know I'm not working. I try to do things outside of the tiny little screen that's almost permanently attached to my hand. So, but 
my team at the college that I work for is super supportive of the work that I do when it comes to accessibility and social media. Whenever I'm with our president and she's meeting someone new and I'm tailing her for social media coverage, she really likes to introduce me to people and like, well, she's an award-winning international yeah. speaker. And I'm just like, this event is not I'm just here to take a picture and put it on Twitter. You don't need to introduce okay, me. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Williams, I'm in all black so that I'm invisible at this. Um, but they're really supportive, which I really like because it helps when I do need to push back against someone sending me content that's not accessible to have that backup from my manager, my associate vice wow, president, that's great. my vice president. They're all super supportive of that. They love to see. I know. I, I truly am living a utopian dream in terms of support because I know that a lot of my peers within higher education and other industries that have social media don't get the same support. So I feel very lucky and very blessed to to have the team that I do and work where I work um, to have that support. So because we've had to push back against the governor's office when they send like a press release that's a JPEG. Like I cannot post this. It's not accessible. And my AVP was like, yeah, you're totally right. I'm going to respond and let them know, like, we can't post this. It's it's not accessible for our students. But yeah, th- and thankfully, there are brands and organizations outside of higher education that have really embraced accessibility um, and championed oh. it. A really great example is NASA. So NASA <clears throat> has actually become really well known for their beautiful images of space that they share from the Webb telescope, but also the extraordinarily detailed alt text they write for those images. So there I've described their alt text for their deep space images as a love letter to space exploration, because that's, that's really what it feels like. And I've said, I was like, I would totally buy a book of just like, here's an image from the telescope. Here's the alt text we wrote for it. Like, give me that as a coffee table book because it's beautiful. So it's really nice to see them embrace accessibility and really lean into it so that, you know, space is for everyone, which is their little tagline on Twitter, space is for everyone. And they really want to make sure that they're fully embracing that message. That's beautiful. Because I think of alt text. And I guess we never fully defined alt text, even though that was the beginning of this. Alt text is what shows up on screen readers so that if you cannot view the image, you see that text instead, or at least that's how it started. Now, often people are putting alt text in addition Mm -hmm. to their captions or into their captions. So that way, if you can't see the image or just want to read instead of looking at it, you can which if we want to get really technical, alt text is usually a really brief description that's on the back end. Image descriptions are visible descriptions. And this is where people get confused. I'm like, I just interchangeably use the expressions because otherwise I confuse people. The image descriptions are when you can like mm-hmm. visibly see it in the body of a caption um, or the body of a post. So, but alt text, you know, when it started yeah. was really just for <laughs> the internet is slow. This image did not load. Here's what it was supposed yep, to be. The and red that's when X. You see the like gray box. Yep. And then has the text next to it, which a lot of times, if someone doesn't write proper alt text, is just the file name for the image. So that's what it really started as. And then it's evolved to be 
for accessibility, which is how people should primarily think about it. It's an accessibility feature that you need to use to make your content accessible. So, you know, it used to be a couple words like stack of pancakes, and that was it. And now it's, you know, it's more illustrative than that because you really want to describe not only the key details of an image to someone, but you're giving them a little bit of context of like basically why you used this image for your content. So it's it's become more descriptive, which I really like. So there's some people that go way too overboard and then I'm like, okay, you're veering off from the actual purpose of all text, but I appreciate <laughs> so, your So, you know, my, my background is search engine optimization. And so alt text can be really helpful for having your images show up in Google image mm-hmm. search. Alt text is the default text if people are going to pin directly from your website into right. Pinterest. So I'm, I have always taught people, you know, use mm-hmm. alt text. You can put a keyword into your alt text, but don't make that the primary intention of the alt text because it really should be there for accessibility. And what I've always taught has been like, keep it as simple as possible. Because if people are listening to a screen reader, they don't want to have to read this long list of keywords that were like, whatever. Um, But now that you're talking about NASA, and how it's like a love Mm -hmm. letter to the image and to the audience who's reading it, I'm, I'm thinking like, how descriptive should we allow these, you know, kind of supplemental explanations to be and should your alt text be the same as your caption? It really depends on the image and how complex they are. So the NASA images are clearly very complex. And not only is the image itself, but the subject matter of space, deep space, how do you describe that to someone who can't see it? So the default really for me and a lot of my peers within accessibility is how would you describe this image Mm. to someone over the phone if they can't see it? Like what details are important? And I get a lot of people who are stressed about the idea of writing alt text, which is good because that means you care. And we <laughs> Maybe want not you stressed, to be a little stressed but cognizant. About it. Um, yeah, cognizant. I want you to be yeah, thoughtful about it. But at the end of the day, you are the content author. So you have the power to decide what details in the image are important to the end user. So you get to decide what visual details are important to describe which, you know, if you read your full post and then you read your alt text, is there any information missing that someone should know about from that content? If there is information missing, does it belong in the body of your post or does it belong in the alt text? So I try to, you know, make it less stressful for people. Um, It's helped a lot since I've started telling people, you're the content author, you have the power. And let's talk about like the formatting of your text too. I know we've talked a lot about images and making sure that those are accessible. We talked about video captions, audio transcripts. Um, When you're thinking about what to actually write and how to format it, here's something that I have always done and just discovered that you shouldn't is instead of using bullet points, I would use emojis because I was like, oh, this one is is about this topic and that makes it more interesting, but you're not supposed to do that. So what what are some of those things that either you are always teaching people or you're seeing maybe done in a way that is just people who don't know any better. And and so we can kind of re-educate a little bit here. So fun fact about emoji icons, they all have unique descriptors added to them in their metadata. So it's basically so that a device can tell the difference between a smiley face and a smiley face laughing with tears. 
Um, they just need to be coded uniquely. So they, they have Unicode descriptors added to them. And when an assistive device like a screen reader comes across emoji and content, it uses that description to describe it to the user. Um, most devices that I've oh. used don't actually announce that it's an emoji. You just hear the descriptor read aloud. So if you're using emoji as bullet points or breaking up written copy with a, an emoji icon, it can create Where a You're like, I'm going to tell a joke, a laughing face, blah, blah, blah. Users. You know, like it doesn't necessarily have the, you, if you're re having it read out loud to you, you don't necessarily know what yeah. is happening there. Yeah. That would be kind of a cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it interrupts the flow of your copy, essentially. So usually what I suggest for people is if you're going to use emoji, because I love emoji. Some people think I hate emoji because <laughs> I teach about accessibility. I'm like, no, I love emoji. Are you kidding me? You just see my messages. Um, I always, yeah, they're, they're emoji-centric. So, But I always suggest that people use uh, emoji in, in moderation, for sure. You should double-check the descriptions that are assigned to them, which you can do using yeah. the site emojipedia.org love that website, but put them at the end of your posts and tweets so that the important written content gets read first. And then the less important aesthetic information, which are your emoji icons, gets read last. So that's all I suggest. And I usually stick to like two to three emoji at most. I don't really want to go overboard with my emoji, but yeah, emoji is bullet points. Is it's very common. And I understand after that description, like why it would be difficult to listen to an emoji. Yeah. Yeah. And I, people don't seem to realize that depending on the device or the platform of the browser that you're viewing an emoji on, it could have a different description assigned to it, or it looks different. Like we know that Android uh, emoji icons look different from what, you know, I would see on my iPhone just because that's how those interfaces work, which is again, why I really like emojipedia.org because it gives you every known description and appearance for every wow. possible emoji across different platforms, devices, and browsers. So it's a great website. Yeah, it lists websites on there that I've never even heard of. It's it's a truly impressive resource. And I'm it's like all checking time, it out right so now and I'm fascinated. Like I just looked at the two hearts emoji meaning and sometimes it's like yeah. Apple. Here's what it looks like on Apple or Samsung or Microsoft or WhatsApp or Twitter. And you can, oh, one of them, it beats. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's cute. On Microsoft too. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, too, just to see how, like, sometimes the descriptions evolve based on cultural use of them. So, like, go look at the uh, icon for eggplant. Oh, yeah. I'm sure eggplant has a very mm -hmm. specific got, Yeah. So, oh. it's always interesting to see how other platforms or devices describe it. Due to its phallic use, the hashtag eggplant was once banned in Instagram search function. I'm sure it's still blacklisted, if I had to guess. It's probably like shadow banned on the platform. Oh, probably. And it might be in specific countries. It might have I'm your post. sure it is. <laughs> so yeah, that's always one. But I have a an example that I give in my presentations. I use, it's like the old house, but it's like old house, haunted house, or derelict house. And I'm like, derelict. Who, who got fancy one day and decided this is a derelict house? So yeah, it's really interesting to see like the different um, descriptions, but that's something really important to think about with your content because you could use something 
thinking it means one thing visually, but when someone hears it through a screen reader or a text-to-speech program, yeah, no kidding, they're getting a. Oh, very they even have like experience. trends on the different uses of emojis. Oh, God, I'm gonna go down this route. Oh, it's from Google Trends. It shows the Google Trends of the different mm-hmm. emojis. That's why I will fight until the very end when people tell me that the laughing face with tears is outdated. I'm like, but it's still like one of the most popular emojis to use. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I'm going to definitely be going down this rabbit hole. It's a fun one. It lets you like just surprise you and it will tell you like, this is the emoji of a deer. This is the pea pods. Okay. (laughs) I don't need to describe, describe it. Not like you were on the phone, but describe it like you're explaining it on a podcast for no good reason at all, except that you're entertained by it. There's my new exactly. for people writing their own text. <laughs> all right. Any final thoughts, ideas, things you want people to know about this? Oh, and I should say this too. If y'all are like, oh, I wish there was a checklist. There is one accessible dash social.com slash checklist. You can go get the free checklist, the free guide, like all of this is free accessible information. So any final thoughts, comments, concerns about this topic that you want to share? I think the biggest thing that I always want to encourage people when it comes to creating inclusive content of any kind, whether you are talking about accessibility or race, ethnicity, sexuality, is that as digital marketers, you need to remember to step outside of your own lived experience when creating content. Your target audience is still incredibly diverse. Um, They don't necessarily look like you or act like you or experience the world the way that you do. And that's how you need to create content. So I, when I create content, I think about how someone with hearing loss or vision loss is going to experience my content. How would someone with a cognitive disability experience my content? You have to think like that. And I know it feels like extra, but it's really not because if you're not creating accessible content that's a missing piece of your content creation process not an additional I would put a bomb dropping emoji and then explosion emoji (laughs) (laughs) Alex thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate it thank you again for having me it was great talking to you thank you so much for listening to the social slowdown podcast If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or come on over to socialslowdown.com and sign up for our email list so you never miss an episode. We'd also love if you could write a review to help other small business owners find the show. You can head over to socialslowdown.com slash review or grab that link in our show notes for easy access. We'll be back soon with more tips to help you market your business without being beholden to social media. Talk to you then.